Batting cleanup today is Greg Schaefer. He's the information security officer for First Bank, um, local Tennessee bank here. Um, he also chairs a uh, CISO group that I'm a part of. We meet fairly regularly, and he is actually my predecessor here at MTSU. Greg Schaefer. Hello, everybody. We've had a real awesome presentation day today and yesterday. We have certainly been exposed to some wonderful pieces of information. There's been some overlap with some of the presentations, and there'll be a little bit of overlap in mine. But I'm hoping that what you're going to see, what I'm going to present, is going to have a little bit of a different twist associated with it, and that your takeaway will have a little bit of a different twist. So I want to start off with a story. The story begins about 10 years ago, and it was the worst week of my professional career. At least to date, it was the worst week of my professional career. And it was right here at MTSU. As Brian mentioned, um, I'm currently Information Security Officer for First Bank. Previous to that, I was uh, Me uh, Nashville Metro's first uh, Chief Information Security Officer. And then before that, I'd been at MTSU for about 12 years. The worst week of my professional career was the convergence of a couple of events. The first being students coming back to school. This was in August of 2003. I know there are a lot of educational institutions represented here, or some. You understand what I'm talking about when you can see this whole influx of new people with new machines laptops and desktops, in an era where I don't think that we had coined the term BYOD at that point in time. Remember, this is 10 years ago. The second part of this story, of this convergence, perfect storm, was a new worm that took advantage of a vulnerability that actually there had been a patch for for several months. Now, back at that point in time, Patching Microsoft vulnerabilities was not the streamlined process that it is today. So the percentage of machines that did not have this vulnerability patched, you can imagine, was quite high. And th this was Blaster. You all remember Blaster? A lot of fun. Blaster had the characteristic that week, the first week, or the worst week thus far of my professional career, of generating an awful lot of traffic. And this traffic was very, very, very difficult to block. It caused basically a traffic jam, if you will, on our computer backbone, on the network backbone. It made communication extremely difficult. We did eradicate it. My staff worked extra hours that week. It was, it was very, we, we, we put in long nights. We had departments making us coffee. We were never completely down. And I'm, I'm always proud of that about the fact because not all institutions that were being hit at the time could say that. But what we learned at that time was the value of a compromised device. Because what we were seeing were all of these computers that were being used to generate all this traffic. We were seeing something that at that point in time, I'm not really sure yet if they had been coined as well distributed denial of service attack. Some of this traffic was going off to Microsoft, who 
whack it. But within the network as well, we had all this traffic trying to infect other machines, and a lot of them being successful. So that was my first exposure to the broadening scope of what a compromised machine could actually do. So the value of a compromised machine, what does it really mean to you? A lot of times when I think about it, I think about, as we've heard several times this, this past couple of days, Facebook. Clicking on that link to that video that my friend said, I just absolutely have to see. I've got to see this video. And so I click on it. It says, well, yeah, you've got to have a better video player in order to see this. And, of course, I'm like, well, that's great. I'm upgrading my machine here at the same time. So I click on it, and I get this video player. And, of course, nothing really happens. And then I realize exactly what's been happening. I've been whacked. My machine's been whacked. And now all my personally identifiable information, anything that I have on my machine, is now at risk. Anything I might have on there. Tax records, finance records, anything like that. That's the value of a compromised machine, right? That's what it's all about. The guy from LifeLock driving around in the truck with his social security number on the side. I mean, he's telling everybody that, right? So that's got to be it. That is the sole value of a compromised machine. No, not at all. Going a little bit further in time, don't know if you all remember this little incident that happened. I do. I'm a vet. And I remember when this happened because I got a few letters from the VA telling me that there had been this breach. This breach basically being the loss of a laptop. Now, as this particular event unfolded, what actually ended up happening is that the laptop was misplaced and it was recovered. And supposedly forensics was performed and there was no indication that the data had been accessed by an unauthorized person or in an unauthorized manner. That's okay. That's good. That's a pretty big relief right there, right? But it lends itself to something else. It shows the idea of data being in places of masses, if you will, where here you had 26.5 million records in one particular place. What this demonstrates is, if I'm a bad guy and I really want to get somebody's personally identifiable information, am I really going to perhaps focus on my machine? Or am I going to go after where there are many, many, many records available? This is what Anonymous does. They've demonstrated this over so certainly a couple of years ago, I guess the summer of 2011 might be called the summer of Anonymous, right? But Anonymous is still out there. We know that they're still using the ability to go into servers, to gather information, to basically push their agenda. So it's a hacktivist. Sometimes I like that term, term hacktivist. Sometimes I'm kind of like, well, I don't know. Criminal sometimes comes to mind. It's a, that's a conversation for another day. But back to being the value of a compromised device is they're using this in order to push forward their agenda. So it's not necessarily now about my data. It's not necessarily about just getting personally identifiable information. 
Let's go a little bit further in time. This actually now to just the past, past year. Now, I said I'm in the finance industry, so this is a little bit near and dear to me. Distributed denial of service attacks that are being, were being, and still are being, attacked against banks in order to push forward again, just like anonymous, an agenda. In this case, the particular idea is there is supposedly this video on YouTube that is not exactly the most complimentary for the Muslim faith, and this group is not happy about that and wants to see the video removed. That is what the stated purpose of these attacks are. Again, it's beyond the scope of this conversation to say, well, is that really what's going on or not? There are some different theories. The point being, though, that these bad guys are using machines. Typically, in this case, they're using compromised servers. Many compromised servers combine it into a botnet. Most of us know what a botnet is. We've talked about this during the last couple of days. When a machine gets hacked, machine gets compromised, and then it becomes part of a collective, if you will. And a collective that can be commoditized, that can be bought and sold or rented for a certain amount of time, certain amount of bandwidth, at a certain cost. Now, again, in this particular instance, more likely servers were being used, compromised servers, as opposed to compromised machines, simply because of the bandwidth that has been encountered. But botnets are comprised of user machines, work machines, your machine, my machine, all the time. So what this is all leading to now is we started off by thinking about the value of a compromised device being all about me, being all about my data, right? My personally identifiable information that's on my machine. Now we've seen a little bit of an expansion here. We've seen hacktivism, trying to get a point across. We've seen business disruptions. In this particular case, whenever a bank was hit, think about the transactions that couldn't take place. Was there money lost? Most likely. Even if that wasn't the stated intent, it actually did happen. But then there's also the underground economy. The money that is being generated in selling these botnets or renting these botnets. So now suddenly the idea of the value of a compromised device has grown beyond my little world of thinking, oh, it's all about me, obviously. It's become a little more global. Let me shift gears for a second. How many of you know the name Brian Krebs? That's good. If you don't know Mr. Krebs, and unfortunately I do not know him personally, I guess you could say it's on my professional bucket list at one point in time. I would love to meet him. Mr. Krebs was at one point in time a journalist for the Washington Post. And he wrote about many things at that time. In addition, a lot of it focused on information security. He has a very big passion for information security. He, he ended up leaving the Washington Post and going out on his own. He started this blog, Krebs on Security. And within this blog, he details some of the actions that he takes when he infiltrates areas of the internet where the bad guys congregate. It, by doing this, using his journalistic talents, Krebs is able to come up 
with information and intel that most, it's very difficult for most people to actually get to. And he publishes this, he analyzes it, and he's been doing this for several years. Well, at one point in time, and I believe this is probably about a year or two ago, he came up with the idea that there are so many different elements of value to a hacked PC. And he thought, what is the best way to communicate this? And so he came up with a diagram similar to this. This is actually phase two, if you will, about the diagram. Now, I'm not going to go ahead and read every single thing on here. I, I invite you, one of your takeaways is go to uh, KrebsOnSecurity.com, or org, I think it is, and investigate this for yourself. Just look at it. And I know I'm speaking to security professionals. A lot of us are here. This will come around. There's a, there's a point to this, and I'll get to that very soon. And there may be things up here that you're all aware of, and maybe there's some fill-in-the-blank fill areas. Certainly, it's a very good communicative tool, and SANS seems to think so. Now, we all know SANS, or we've been exposed to SANS. The last presentation uh, mentioned just briefly the SANS Top 20 Controls, and I would also encourage that if your organization is not one that has an information security program that is rooted in or based on one of the standards with all the different acronyms, ISO 27000, NIST 853, REV4, COBIT 5. Go look at the 20, top 20 controls. This is a really good example of the 80-20 rule, if you will. If you can implement these controls in your organization, you're going to reduce the risk. Now, getting back to the diagram here, both Krebs and, to a lesser extent, SANS, they're talking about hacked devices. Certainly, that's what Krebs' diagram is about. Now, I have to tell you, I'm very big about communication, and I also I see information security in a very holistic standpoint. I'm very big about using the right words, the exact words, when communicating. So Krebs talks about hacked, the value of a hacked PC, I prefer to use the word compromised, hence the title of this presentation. And I like using the word compromised because, in my mind, there's a difference between hacking and compromising. And I know this might be semantics, but again, it's going to come around in the end as to where the communication is very important, why it's very important. When I see hacked, I see a direct one-to-one -one relationship. You're hacking my machine. You're trying to get into my computer, my server. You are actually coming in, and you are attacking me. It's almost personal. I almost feel like you're coming directly after me. In the case of compromise, there's not quite that one-to-one -one relationship. We talked a little bit about watering holes. And this is a good example. This just happened recently. You might have read about this. Department of Labor. Their website, or elements of the website, were compromised in what is seen as a watering hole attack or attempt. So who would typically want to, who would typically visit this website? I'm not really 100% sure, but I might guess, for example, maybe human resources departments, elements within there. So perhaps as a theory that the bad guys are trying to get information from compromised human resource computers. What kind of information could you get from that in uh, uh, companies, human resource companies' uh, departments? 
Well, you can get personally identifiable information. Again, now you've got a place where it's aggregated. Maybe you can start building org charts, figuring out intel. But the point being is that did the bad guys really directly hack into the human resources machines, or did they compromise it via this website? The reason why I bring that up is because we have to start thinking a little less in the weeds, a little bit more global. Or if we have been thinking that way, we have to continue that trend. We have to think more holistically. We have to think broader. We have to not narrow our definitions of issues to certain elements. And I believe that that begins with using the correct words and the correct terminology. So I'm going to take it a step further now and talk about devices. We've talked about devices, smartphones and tablets during the last couple of days. Everybody has one here. Also about mass storage devices. Let me ask a question. I can make it rhetorical, but if anybody knows the answer, feel free to just shout it out. CDs have been around for a long time, and certainly they're used today still for storage, although we tend to favor higher density stuff like DVDs and Blu-ray and all that stuff. But CDs have been around for a while. What was the first commercially produced music CD, and when was it? It was 52nd Street, Billy Joel. And it was in 1982. So this stuff has been around for a while, and if you think about it, going back to the 80s, and maybe I'm showing my age here, the idea of introducing malware via compromised devices, storage devices, not necessarily a PC, has been around for a while too. How did worms and viruses spread back in the day? They spread via floppy disks, going from one machine to another. They were really floppy back in the day. The point, again, that I'm trying to make is to broaden our thinking. So it's not necessarily the value of a hacked PC. It's the value of a compromised device. We think about devices in certain ways, shapes, or forms. Now, I'm not going to go too much. I was going to go in a little bit more with regards to Stuxnet, but Betsy's the talk on that it just was absolutely fabulous. We know that Stuxnet was introduced using a USB drive. Takeaway from here is consider, consider elements like that as a possible device that can be compromised. Can just incorporate it into your holistic thinking about information security. We can go a little bit further, too. What did I do? Okay. Intellectual property. Now, this is the part of the conversation, too. Sometimes it's great to go last in a conference. Sometimes you tend to cover other elements that had been covered beforehand. Well, I have to go back to, uh, I really enjoyed Dr. Raines' uh, uh, talk on Tuesday. It was very fun, very informative. And also, he and I, I want to say, is pro probably a good example of how great minds think alike. Because my favorite example of intellectual property theft is the Russian space shuttle. Now, I don't know if you all know, but the shuttle actually did fly once. It flew unmanned. They were in the process of building five of these back in the early to mid-80s. Then uh, the Soviet Union collapsed, and they went into storage. Last time I heard something about this particular shuttle, the only one that flew, is that I believe it was destroyed in a hangar when snow collapsed the roof. So 
but it kind of looks a little bit like the American shuttle, right? Well, that's actually not only a coincidence, and obviously there's some intellectual property theft, but it was the stated goal of the Russians back then that one of their part of their project charter, if you will, was to copy what they could from the American program into their program. Now, if you, don't, if you remember anything about the space program, they launched this thing using not solid uh, rocket motors, but uh, liquid engines, because their technology, their expertise in, in that sort of rocketry, the solid motors, was just horrendous. But they took this design. So, okay, enough of the shuttle. But let's think about intellectual property. Another example, the value of a compromised device. Let's just say, now maybe it's a little bit more about me, but I'm J.J. Abrams, right? And I'm writing the treatment for Star Wars 7. We all, or if, probably all of us know that there is going to be a Star Wars 7, and most likely you're going to have some of the main actors from the older movies back in there, which is great. And so you have an entire world of people wanting to know way in advance what's going to happen in this movie. So perhaps there now you have some intellectual property value to TMZ. What if they were able to get a hold of, get into J.J. Abrams' machine and be able to pick up the latest screen treatments for, for Star Wars? Getting back to the point of trying to think a little more holistically, trying to think a little bit more outside the box. We've, we've spent the last couple of days learning some details about some uh, uh, attacks and some methodologies, but bringing it all together. Another one of my favorites on this diagram, talk briefly about usernames and passwords in the upper left-hand corner. Again, mentioned Zeus and SpyEye during this particular, I think it was a, a session yesterday and maybe one today as well too. I had the pleasure a few years back of being at a conference where I got to play both the actor, the threat actor, and the victim in a Zeus spy eye attack. Now, as the victim, I surfed to a website. It was the website that would then dump the malware on my machine. It could have been a watering hole type of setup. I surfed to that website. I didn't notice anything that happened. Then I go to my online banking, and I do what I wanted to do. This is, of course, in a closed environment. And then I go over to be the threat actor. And the way that, if you've, if you've never had a chance to experience this, it's, there's, there's a different world between hearing about it and actually being a part of it, seeing it. The, the way that you can catalog the reams of data that come in, that, what, the, what the bad guys see, with regards to account type and bank type and country, you can target these things based on country or browser or what have you. I'm not one to, sp to spread FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, but this freaked me out. And this was actually the first time that I started to use a live CD for online banking. The value of a compromised device. It's kind of hard to compromise a device when you're using a live CD. I would su suggest it's not impossible, but it's probably pretty difficult. So still talking about username and password, something else that happened recently. Does this look familiar? There's a couple of things about this tweet, one that I found really disturbing. And no, it wasn't the effect that the stock market dropped 150 points in a matter of milliseconds, the Dow Jones Industrial. 
Let's just think for a moment, and, and also I'm getting back to Zeus and SpyEye. Kapersky Labs last year uh, succinctly proved that there is a variant of Zeus that exists both for iOS and for Android. So for the sake of argument, let's say that it was a mobile device that was compromised to get these credentials, the value of a compromised device. You might think the value of the compromised device here is getting the credentials, the username and passwords, but no, it's, it's about access to what the machine can do, whether it's a DDoS attack or, in this case, getting access to another resource. So this Twitter, this tweet went out. Stock market dropped. Dow Jones, 150 points. Three minutes later, it's back up to normal. Everything's all, all nice and dandy and perfect, right? Because there's been no permanent damage. The AP put out a, a notice saying, A, this is not a, an approved method, or an approved channel of conveying news and information, and B, we've taken care of all this. So there's, there was no harm, no foul, right? Well, I'd submit to you now there was, there was a couple of really bad things that happened here. Maybe three. First being, of course, reputational damage to the Associated Press. Value of a compromised device, perhaps the bad guys wanted to knock the AP down for some reason. I don't really think this is the case here, but something to consider. The second, what kind of financial gains and losses happened in those five minutes? Can you consider, perhaps, that this was done in order for the bad guys to take advantage of a perceived and a predicted momentary drop in the stock market, buy, and then sell. Sounds a little bit outlandish as well, too. I don't really know what the reason for this was. It could have just been simply, hey, someone demonstrates that they could do it. That's all fine and good. That's the scariest one in my mind. One tweet, 140 characters or less, caused this much disruption in the United States stock market. Wouldn't you think that the bad guys paid attention to this and now are thinking, wow, if one tweet, 400, 140 characters can do this, what can we really do if we really plan this? The value of a compromised device. Now, there are other elements on this sheet, and I'm not going to go through it. I certainly invite you to go and look at it, examine it, compare it with your program and so on, and that's all great. And we're all information security professionals, and we've done that before, but that's not the takeaway here. But the takeaway here is communication. As information security professionals, we're business leaders. We are risk managers. We exist to enable business, not say no. Mobile banking is here. Mobile banking will stay. Do I like that? No. So we have to properly assess the risk. And then we don't make the decisions. We convey that to our business leaders, our board, our C-suite, those who make the decisions, they're relying upon us to convey that risk, to communicate it properly, to use the right words, and to use tools such as a simple diagram to convey that risk. It's our responsibility. It's our duty. I can't say it enough. There's, 
so much about the information security community seems to be about saying no. We've done a very good job over the last 10 years of not doing that. We can do a much better job. Because us, as professionals, we have to understand our role in the business as business leaders and business enablers. So with that, if anybody has any questions, I'd be happy to entertain it. This is my contact information. I do believe in social media. I use it extensively. So feel free to contact me. Does anybody have any questions or comments? Yes. I think the issue with what that tweet did to the stock market, mm -hmm. saying that it's on the internet and money is true. <laughs> I don't know if you all heard that, but the, the issue of uh, what the tweet really did is that it, it, it showed that if it's on the Internet, then it must be true. So, Anybody else? All right. Well, thank you very much.